The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is powered by theflycrate.com, an online fly shop. Join the Quarterly Fly Club today, your source for all things fly fishing. And wait for it films. For action-packed fly fishing videos and camera-related content, check out Wait For It Films on YouTube or at www.theweightcreativeco.com. And Broken Tippet Fly Company. Blog and fishing apparel and accessories. Check them out online at brokentippet.com. You, you, you are listening. You are listening. You are listening to the Fly Fishing ninety seven podcast. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool. I and that's you were talking about like that uni stretch or those products that. Do you when you when you use that? Do you kind of go super tight in the butt section of the fly and then kind of ease off the tension to create a bit of a taper? Yeah, that, that's what I do like the material for that because you can create, as you see, you can create the taper just by easing off the tension as you wind it up. I I got to admit, um, in the last maybe six months to a year. I've had a lot of folks on from your neck of the woods. Um, it sounds to me like fly fishing's just alive and well in Scotland. Um, I mean, I'm so influenced too by uh, your fellow countryman, Davey McPhail. Like, I love watching his videos. Have you been inspired by his work at all? Yeah, I have watched a lot of Davey's uh, videos, and he's great, great videos he produces, and a great inspiration. Anyone starting out tying, or even anyone tying, should be watching them. And you can pick up so many tips and tricks. Yeah, just uh, he he and he uses a lot of permanent markers. That's kind of one of the reasons I asked you about that because I uh, that was um a real learning curve for me because you can add color to the fly without bulk. Yeah, I was actually um, I think it's someone from your neck. I would say Wes Penny on a yeah. follow him on Instagram. Yeah. And some of his patterns are amazing. And I noticed he did a YouTube video where he used permanent marker to colour the UV resin. Yeah, I which just... Is something I'm intending to play with. That, that looks like a great idea. I think I've watched that video probably 50 times. It's in my saved files. And, <laughs> and I've had Wes on the show, and yeah, he's a big inspiration for me. And he's using a lot of the same products you're using, too. I see some similarities. It's kind of cool, I think, as fly tires, we influence each other without even knowing it. Yeah, and it's the beauty of uh, social media now, as you can pull the influences from so far apart, so far away. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by The Fly Crate. The Fly Crate is an online fly shop where you can save more on flies and gear. Shop between hundreds of unique flies and join the quarterly fly club for hand-picked fly assortments for each season. Exclusively for our podcast listeners, you can save an additional 10% on The Fly Crate by using the code FLYFISH97. Go to theflycrate.com and use the code FLYFISH97 at checkout to save 10%. Well, welcome to this edition of the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Really happy you chose to join us today. And we're going to take a little hop over the Atlantic, actually, to Scotland. Uh, just outside of Aberdeen, we've got Robert McDonald Lewis, a.k.a. Robbie. Uh, he's in the northeast of Scotland. He is an amazing tire. Um, check him out on Instagram at RML underscore fly tying. We've been working on hooking up 
uh, this interview for a while. And, uh, you know, with the time difference, uh, you being eight hours ahead, Robbie, we finally made it work. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Mark. It's a pleasure to be on. So um, you probably know by now that I like to dig into your fly fishing history, kind of your story, kind of what... What started this, you know, fly tying craze, this fly fishing passion, kind of all that you do thing? And we'll talk day jobs on this too, because I know you're a structural engineer in, in offshore oil and gas. We'll dig in deep on this. But um, where did the passion kind of ignite for you? Where did it all start, Robbie? Well, my journey in fishing started when my elder brother introduced me to spinning for mackerel off the coast. I grew up on the west coast of Scotland and uh, he had a great deal of patience. He would stand there with us for hours and initially he'd have to cast and we'd wind in and it was almost a, a fisher cast. And I think from that first mackerel and barely being able to wind it in, I was hooked as much as the fish. Love it. Yeah. Love it. What Now, this is a stupid question. What do you use, what kind of bait were you fishing with for mackerel? We were just using little uh, metal spoons, Tobies. Okay. Perfect. Uh, nice and simple. So uh, after that, so kind of what transition into the fly fishing specifically, because we are, you know, it's a fly fishing show. And I, I think a lot of us start with, with a spinning rod and lures and kind of, it seems to evolve over time. That's been my experience. Has that been yours? Yes, but I guess my evolved step into fly fishing didn't come until quite a bit later in life. It was a, uh, it was quite, I suppose, a slightly amusing story. I met uh, my wife just as I was finishing university. And uh, I don't know if she was trying to keep me entertained, but said she'd never caught a fish and would like to catch a fish. So I th thought I'd take her to one of the local stocked fisheries and get her into some rainbow trout and uh, took her on the bait pond. It was a nice and simple way to do it. And uh, we spent a few hours there and caught, she caught a few fish, but all the time I was looking over her shoulder at the pond with all the guys fly fishing. And uh, it was really the first time I'd been close to people fly fishing. And uh, just it just seemed like a more enjoyable way to fish. So I, thought, I spoke to the fishery manager and he arranged to give us a little practice casting lesson. And I guess the rest is history from there. Yeah. So, so then where did the tying come from? Because believe it or not, I have spoke to people that started tying before they even started fly fishing. I will tell you that is not the norm from, from my experience, but when did you start hitting the vice? Well, it wasn't actually too long after I started fly fishing. Um, there was, a there was a giveaway with a, a fly fishing magazine and they had a little packet of three flies. And I remember one was a, a little buzzer chromid imitation, a black body, silver rib, and a bright orange head. And uh, I was had a great day fishing with this fly, and I was uh, in an hour I'd had about ten or fifteen fish. It was the best I'd ever done fishing. And then a a, a decent sized fish and snapped the line and was gone. So for the next two or three weeks, I was desperately searching in shops and online to try and buy another one of these flies and I just couldn't. So that was when I had realized that I was going to have to try and tie one up myself. Do you remember, get... you remember what that pattern was, Robbie? Like, do you remember the name of it or what it looked like? I didn't have a name. As I said, it was uh, just a little black buzzer with a, a sort of hot orange head. Ah, 
Thorax. So you still fish a fly similar to that today? Um, to be honest, not often. It's not a style of fish now. I, I transitioned away from the stocked fisheries into more focusing on wild brown trout. Oh, love it, yeah. love it. We'll dig into that. Okay, so before we um, we do that, let's let's get to know your day to day a little bit. You ready for a, a few questions that kind of uh, get a feel for your area just outside of Aberdeen? Yeah, absolutely. First off, you told me uh, just as we hopped on this call, you're on a you're on a big farm, like 17 acres. What what, what do you farm in there? Um, well, actually, my wife breeds uh, Shetland ponies. Oh wow! And uh, but I've got a few other animals. We've had pottered around with sheep before and chickens and huh. just right. about anything I can think of. We've got we've got a couple of wee goats just now as well. Right on. So let's but, uh, let's say you just jumped in your vehicle and you're headed to your favorite lock or uh, even moving water, wherever you happen to be going, what are you listening to in the stereo when you're driving there? Um, I'm not that much of a music buff, so usually it's the radio or uh, some light rock or something. I'm fairly easy Ozzy. My iTunes library is usually filled by my wife's purchases. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But more recently, I've been started listening to some podcasts on the way I found out. Yeah, that's... Quite- it's passed the time quite well. I, I love kind of lining podcasts up with my drive time. So I got like a 45-minute commute. So that's kind of my wheelhouse. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, I, I hear you. We can learn so much. Whatever you want to learn about that day, It's uh, to me, that's pretty interesting. L- let's talk fly patterns, Robbie. So um, one go-to fly pattern you can't live without. So you're opening that box. And I know this is a loaded question because it could vary so much. But what, what's one pattern you tie on more often than not? Yeah, it's a killer of a question for a fly tire. <laughs> um, I suppose one of my defaults would be, it's probably going to be a sedgehog for locks if I was fishing a hill lock. If I was fishing a river, it would might be deer head emergers, usually my go-to. Mm. If there's anything moving or rising. If you're not on the water and you want to get your fix in the fishing world or even the tying world, where do you go for that? Like, is that a social media thing? Is there a fly shop in Aberdeen? You're like, this is where I get my fix. Is there a coffee shop, a, a, a local pub? Um, talk to me where you get your feel of fly fishing when you're not fishing. I think this would kind of show this. Aberdeen would be a neatest fly fishing tackle shop. But we, I don't think they do fly shops as the way, in the way you do them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so funny, fun, funny you said that because I do remember being over there and and, tr- and trying to find fly shops and you'd find a fishing shop. So it'd be basically, you know, they, they'd have a lot of carp stuff, some um, boilies, that kind of thing. But you'd also have some small fly patterns and, and, and whatnot. Is, is that kind of the way the shops are set up over there? Yeah, yeah. And I think, I don't, I think sometimes the quality... Oh, Depends on the shop, but some shops have got some excellent flies in them. But a lot, when I first started, a lot of the shops didn't have great quality flies either. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of stuck that way. Yeah. But I think a lot of them are getting better now. But for my fishing fix, yeah, it's generally social media. There's I, a. I got to tell you something, Robbie. You're, so your your accent, your voice reminds me so much. I used to. This is forty. 40 plus years ago, it used to be a fly shop in Cologne. It was called Ben Shona. And it was a Scottish gentleman, and I cannot remember his name for the life of me, but um, he was an amazing fly tire. And uh, man, he, he probably kind of ignited the stoke for all things fishing for me if I look back. But um, it's nice to hear a familiar accent for sure. Um, 
<laughs> Let's, as long as you can understand me. Oh, 100%. 100%. So are you a big sports guy? Like, so let's get into sports. If you're cheering for your team, are you are you football, rugby, cricket? Um, where do you get your fill in the world of sports? I'm definitely a rugby man. I played schoolboy and played a bit of club level afterwards. Nice. So who's, who, who's your team? I, I don't really follow the club game that much anymore, but uh, okay. definitely support the internationals, but... Yeah, Scotland's yeah, playing. Since I away Scotland, but I'm, I'm half Welsh, so. Ah, okay. Good stuff. So you pull for Wales once in a while too? Yeah, when they're not playing Scotland. <laughs> I thought you might say that. Um, good stuff. Uh, what, biggest lesson you've learned on your fly fishing journey. So if you look back and you go, this is my takeaway, like whether it's, you know, patience, um, whatever it is, like what do you take away? What do you think it does for you? What have you learned? I know those are, slightly different questions but kind of speak to that a little i think there's i suppose there's a couple of things with fly time there's there's nothing new in fly time there i'm always wary of i don't think i've named i think i may have put a name to a single pattern but i think such a broad church there's so many people doing it somewhere someone has usually done it before yeah but agree in learning to tie i think it's just to as you say patience and taking your time there's there's nothing or very little you can't recover from. When you're tying a fly, you can break a hackle, even breaking your thread, you can reattach, catch on, and you can still come up with a serviceable, neat fly. But, um, and it's also, you don't need to tie the perfect fly. Yeah, I think that's funny you said that. Like, that is so true. And, and who's to say what's perfect? Like, let's face it, sometimes when these patterns get beat up a little bit, they get, you know, they take on a few fish. They seem to work better. Yeah, well, you always hear the stories of people who used to buy flies and drop them on the ground and rub their foot over them before they'd fish them, <laughs> just to roughen them up a bit. And I do it myself with my loft patterns, um, the palmer bodies, because you want the dubbing picked out. I will tie the fly up finish it off, and then I'll give it a good scrub with some Velcro. Yeah. Um, just gets that, the light in about the body and a bit more movement. Plus, it's a good acid test before the fish get to it. So when when you're fishing these locks and whatnot, do you fish balance patterns as well? Because um, I was looking through your catalog of flies, and a lot of times people have a signature. They have certain styles. You can, but you... I sense you're all over the map as far as there's nothing you won't tie. Yeah, well, I, I can see it. It's almost, I don't get as much time to fish as I'd like, so fly tying is almost a, an add-on hobby in itself. And I like to try different things and styles because you can learn something tying a certain part, style of fly that you can then pull into other flies. Um, yeah so. exactly exactly and that's I, I like what you said when you said nothing has been it's all been done before and it has but it's how you substitute in those other techniques to make it yours does that make sense yeah absolutely and you can come up with almost use a, an existing pattern but use slightly different materials or in a slightly different arrangement and come up with something that's very different and will fish differently and fills a slightly different niche so fill in the blank for me. When you're not fly fishing, what are you normally doing day to day? 
I suppose uh, working and then uh, helping around the the craft and doing the heavy lifting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then if I'm not fishing, it's fly time. If I yeah. get spare time. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, let's talk jobs. Best job you've ever had. Are are you doing it now? I probably am. Yes. Um, as a structural engineer, the company I'm working with, we, it's it's varied. We do lots of different jobs. It's interesting. No, you never know what's coming up in the next couple of days. So quite fortunate with that. It's a small sort of high end consultancy. So it's uh, it's varied that way. What's um, the what's the worst job you ever had to date that you, you're willing to talk about? Oh well, there's uh, <laughs> oh, there's there's been a couple. I've done a few things. Uh, did the did a job labouring when I was at university that was uh, checking scaffold clamps. So old clamps from scaffolds that came back from offshore, so they were all rusted up. So you had to check that whether or not the the nuts could be turned. So that was that was mind numbing. Right. Um, and uh, I suppose when I was at university, I was a I was a door steward, which Parts of it were quite good, but there was a uh, had to do a couple of shifts at a shop called Aldi's in Aberdeen, and that's like it's a little, little corner store, grocery store. So that was fairly painful. That's standing still in the middle of a shop for four hours was tough going. It takes a special person to, and I I did that growing up. You worked like convenience stores or gas stations. It takes a special person to do that, in my opinion. I have a lot of respect for people that. You know, you're, you don't know who's coming in that door. Um, I used to work at a gas station that was fairly close to a psychiatric institution and a prison. And when people, it was, uh, man, I got some stories. I'm sitting on that one, I tell you. Um, <clears throat> anyway, I'm getting off topic. So listen, when, when Timothy Jensen, um, former MMA fighter out of Kelowna, we had him on the show. He reached out to me and said, man, you got to talk to Robbie. He's, I know you're a big inspiration to him. So when I, when I look at tires, I, um, I'm always inspired by, you know, people that are getting creative, doing things a little off the cuff, a little differently, but your patterns look very clean. I can tell you've been doing it a long time and, uh, grateful that Tim reached out and said, you need to talk to my buddy, Robbie. Um, we're chatting today with Robert McDonald Lewis, aka Robbie, out of Aberdeen, Scotland. RML underscore fly tying. Check him out on Instagram. Um, it, do you do this in any way, shape, or form as a business, or do you just tie because you love it? I I just tie because I love it. Um, I'm, I've done a few reorders for people who have approached me, but I I know in no way push it. It's I don't think I could make money out of tying flies. I think it was a, it's a misnomer a lot of people fall into if they, they start tie, fly, sorry, tying flies to save money. It never works. <laughs> yeah, no, that's been my experience. Um, talk to me about your tying room. Describe your tying room. I assume you're probably sitting in it right now. And if you are, look around. What kind of materials you got hanging on the wall? What kind of vice are you tying on? Paint us a little picture of your tying setup. So uh, uh, quite fortunate with the last couple of years and now having to work from home, I've set up, I've got my, my home office has my tying set up in one corner. So I've got my desk, which is a mess of various tools, resins, wires, a couple of lamps. I've got some empty whiskey bottle holders with some 
peacock tails, pheasant tails, and some knotted pheasant tail legs and various other feathers and boxes for hooks. Um, on the wall, I've got a map of the River Deverin with uh, an illustrated map, Fisher Angler's map. So it's got a map of the river with all the beats labelled on it. Um, I've got a geological map of Scotland, which is I bought when I was up in Assen fishing a few years ago. So I've got that framed on the wall as well. Hmm. Um, I'm very fortunate in my tying. I um, oh, try it. Many years ago, while they were still in production, I bought a law bench vise. Um, so at the time, now I'm trying to think back. Now it must be, it must be about 2006 or seven. I bought it. Um, but yeah, it's it's an amazing tool. I could never hope to purchase the same vice now. Oh, describe that vice again. I'm, I'm. You said a bench vice. Is that the brand? It's, it's no. It's law. Okay. Uh, Lawrence Waldron vice. So you see, they, they occasionally come up in the second hand market now, and I think some of them are going for £2,000 almost. Wow. So is that a, a company that's no longer in business? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, he was a, a one man shop. He built the vices, built and designed the vice himself. Okay, I'm writing this down. What, what, how's that spelt? What's the name of that company again? L-A-W. L-A-W. Okay. Uh, I got to look in. What is it you like so much about that vice, just out of curiosity? It's just the, it is, I think it was sheer craftsmanship that's gone into it. It's, it is beautifully designed, simple, and works amazingly. It's the, um, there's a lot of vices very similar to it coming out now. So um, HMH Talon Vice, the FNF have done one. Okay. And uh, Premier Vices, there's a lot of very similar vices out now, but I've never tried any of the other ones. Um, it's just the bearing on it is just perfect, smooth. And it, yeah, it's just a, a cracking tool. It's one of those things that's uh, just a, it just makes it a, it's a pleasure to use. I mean, it's not going to make me tie any better flies. My flies would be the same on any other vice but right. it's just nice to use it's funny how we get comfortable with the tools that we have like i think of some of the vices i've had over the years maybe they weren't the best but i was super comfortable with it you know it um talk to me about some of your go-to tools like that you can't live without like um are you a whip finish guy is there a certain type of uh, bobbin that you're like this is what i have to use to do the job what works for you I have to say, I, excuse my pronunciation on this, but I like the Wasatch tools. The, so I, I use a whip finisher. I can whip finisher with my fingers, but I just find the tool is much more precise and neater. Yeah. How, okay, so normally, say you're doing a buzzer or even like a, a small leech pattern um, for your lock style fly fishing, how many whip finishes do you do normally? Like, is, what's the number? Two, three-turn whip finishes. And do you use a resin or, or any type of head cement? What do you finish the fly with normally? So in the last year or so, I've started using a thin resin. 
Um, just now it's I'm using the Solaris bone dry, but that's just the first thin one that I bought, and it's been going for a while. I've uh, had a lot of good feedback on Solaris. I, I have used it. Um, I do like those really thin. I think it's Solaris or maybe it's Solaris. I don't know. I, I say it wrong all the time. But um, I use a little bit of that uh, Loon UV. Um, what, what kind of light do you use, just out of curiosity, to, to cure that? So I went through a few, because I've tried a few resins. I don't, I always like to try a few products before I'll set on the one I actually stick with, just to make sure, because if, if you only try one, you never know if anything else is any better. So I've got some golf resins as well, which I'll probably try their thin one. But um, it was actually, I think it was the guys at Gulf were quite helpful because I spoke to them and they said that they needed a light with a, I think it was a 365 nanometer uh, wavelength. So I actually went on to, had a little hunt around on Google and bought a torch off uh, Amazon for about 30 or 40 pound. I can't remember what make it is, but it's, it's not affiliated to any tying brand. But I found that the torch made a huge difference. I was yeah. having problems getting the resins to set, and um, I found a lot of them would go were tacky, but would also they'd lose their shine if you touched them. But with this torch, it seems to work a lot better, and I get a much more uh, resilient finish. Yeah, that's um, that comes up on the show quite a bit. It's so important that you get the right torch or uh, you know flashlight UV light to do the the job and and different companies are, are made in different ways and it really does make a huge difference I know I just had like a knockoff UV torch and I that was my experience sometimes it was kind of tacky it would never really harden and it kind of looked um, dull but yeah it's um, and if I nicked it uh, it would sometimes just fall off I was like ooh, okay that's that's not good Tip I did find with some of them, I did come up with some like doing buzzer patterns. When I was having the issue with the resin going tacky, is um, put, using the UV resin, setting it, and then putting a coat of Sally Hansen hard as nails on top oh, of the after you cure the UV. Yeah, if you're not getting the great finish with your UV resin, the Sally Hansen will set hard and give you a decent seal over the top. Yeah, that's a good. But that's a good that, tip. Pro tip right there. I love it. Stop gap, but I would say far better to speak to the, the manufacturer and get the right torch. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, talk to me about other products you use. Um, I thought I saw you were Semper, Semperfly fly guy. Is, is that uh, accurate? Uh, I'm not on any proteins or anything. Um, I just I have started using quite a lot of their materials. They're... Um, Especially, I found for smaller dry flies and things, the nano silk is brilliant. Or if you're tying quite the uh, complicated flies, you can use a, quite a thin nano silk and it's strong. You're not worrying about breaking it. Okay, another pro tip: How are you cutting that? Um, I use the edge of a single blade, like my scissor blade, but I don't close the scissor to cut it. I pull the blade through the tension thread. That's so a, almost using it like a knife. Yeah, that's a good tip. I like it. You could do get quite a clean cut that way. Okay. Yeah, this is this is good stuff because I um I got to be quite honest. I um that it's been a bit of a bone of contention with the UV and people get really weird with the different lights and the different uh, resins. And I always say 
use what works for you. To me, that's the, I mean, if it, if you like it, that's all that matters. And I also kind of appreciate the fact that you're not a sponsored guy. I know that sounds funny, but sometimes I think, you know, if you're sponsored by a company, you're going to promote what they're up to. And that's something about this show is I try to be a little bit, um, I, nobody pays me to use anything. So um, I, I think I get some real honest answers. I do love talking to the pro team guys. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind, if you wanted to be sponsored by somebody, you would. But it sounds to me like you have a, a pretty busy day job over there. Yeah, yeah, I am. But I guess it's, it's not something I've ever, ever really chased or thought about too much. But as I say, I'm not making, I'm not doing it to make money out of it. I do it just for the enjoyment more than anything. And uh, yeah. yeah, I've not really looked into how the pro staff or pro team stuff works. You mentioned you mentioned earlier, Robbie, that you've got a few pheasant tails sitting in some old whiskey jars. So, <laughs> what what's the beverage of choice when you're at the vice? Out of curiosity. Um, I usually yeah, it would be a dram of some shape, form, description, but uh, typically a single malt if it's for pleasure. Uh, I'm. I quite like my Iowa malts, my island malts, so maybe a Lathroig or a Lagavulin. Okay, good stuff. Um, what, is, what is it about the tying process that you really like so much? Like, let's say you've had a big day at work or it's the weekend, you're trying to unwind. What, what do you think the vice does for you? Because I, I do think it can be quite therapeutic. I've talked to people that actually use it as therapy for different things. Um, what what would your take on that be? To an extent, I do find it's it, you do. I find I almost have to be in the right frame of mind to go to the vice. But once you, you almost almost have to just sort of be halfway there, and then when you sit down, you because you've got to focus on what you're doing, and it's quite detailed skills or fine skills. You, you tend you have to sort of step away from everything else, and you can clear your head. Um, I also find this quite a good way of uh, it helps build the anticipation for a fishing trip. Yeah, yeah, hundred so, percent. That's is that when you do a lot of your tying? So when you're prepping for a trip, or, or are you a winter tire, or is it every day for you? It's uh, no, it's just especially with working at home. I'll try and tie a fly in my lunchtime. So, and as I say, most of my posts on Instagram and the like are flies I've tied that day it's not that i've tied five or six of them to get there i don't always wait for a perfect fly to go up to post it i'll post some of the not so good ones as well but uh, yeah i tie all the time but i find when i'm starting to think of a trip or plan a trip you start thinking of flies and tying some more and it's every tire's looking for that silver bullet fly that's never going to exist you know, exactly. I call it the holy grail, silver bullet, whatever you, however you want to verbalize that. And that, to me, is the reason that I tie, is because you're going to put something on that lock, on that still water, that nobody's ever tied on, ever. And to me, that's kind of cool. I mean, I, I, don't get me wrong. There's commercial patterns that, uh, that will work just fine, but when you put your kind of spin, your variation on it, um, there's something kind of cool about that. Yeah, absolutely. But... Uh... Um, uh, what's that? Sorry, I was going to say we're funny. But you do that. We tie all the fancy flies and all the things. But if I go on a river, there's usually three or four flies that are usually my go-to's, and I'll eventually get around to using the fancy trials and errors or last hope, last hope with tails. 
Yeah, that that to me is that's like the last resort thing. It's like, okay, I've gone through everything in my box, and these fish are not cooperating. Hey, oh, I remember I did this at the Vice one time. I don't even know what this is, but it's going on. It's going out. It's going out there. You know, see what happens. Um, let, let's talk um a little bit more tying. So, um, it sounds to me like so you're using Nano Silk. I I I do really like that product. Um, and I do like some of the GSP threads. Um, they're very similar, but the Nano Silk it goes on super super thin. It lays super super flat. It's super strong. And what I like about that is when you're when you're spinning deer hair, that nano silk's a great tool. Yeah, it, it's it's good for deer hair as well. But I must say, I sometimes <clears throat> for some of my deer hair, winged flies um, and mothers, I'll I'll often go back to our classic a wax, uh, like maybe simply the simplified classic waxed or what I used to always tie on was the uni thread because. You do have to be careful. Well, some you have to be careful sometimes with nano silk. Pull too tight on the deer hair, you can cut it. Yeah, that's, that's then, true. But that that can also be useful if you're so sedge hog wings or something. If you're going to dub over the deer hair wing, you can catch it on, tie it down, and then when you've got the loose butt ends, if you tie pull tight at the end, you can get a very clean cut and finish up. What's, so you don't have all the loose, straggly bits of deer hair. What, what type of patterns do you go, oh, this is not, you know, I got to work harder at this particular pattern. Is is there a specific type that you kind of not struggle with, but would say you find more challenging? Yeah, um, feather slip wings are, are a, a challenge. So when you say feather slip wings, are we talking... Uh, like Wally wings, is that what you mean? No, um, I've admittedly I've not tried many Wally wings, but no, it's like the um, if you look at say the bloody butcher wings, the uh, mallard blue feathers, or yeah, so 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 slips from wing primary feathers from birds. It's not much, I suppose, a slower cat action than the graphite rods. The the epic rod I actually bought that with a dis- it's actually a specific water in mind. Um, somewhere it was called Big Fish. So I wanted something that would cushion the initial take and the first couple of runs of the fish. But it's a, a beautiful rod to cast. But you, it's the versatility I find in the glass rods. So the eight and a half foot six weight, it, you've got enough line there to cast quite heavy flies and streamers. But the glass is sensitive enough. It makes the most fun out of the smallest fish. Yeah, yeah, I get that. It was so there was a, a I met a friend and we were at a rainbow fishery and he has a series of glass rods and I was when I was first thinking about getting one and I was casting his I think it was an eight weight glass rod and a one pound um rainbow trout on the eight weight rod and it still put up a great fight. Hmm. I, I was just sold at that. It's just there's so much feel you still get through for, through them. Yeah, that, and that is something I could see that being really good as a chronomid uh, slash you know buzzer rod because, like you say, it's got that little bit of give in it, and you're not going to be breaking off. So, I think that's something too that a lot of people don't realize. A lot of these high end, very expensive rods, blanks that are super light and super fast action, um, they, they they're not forgiving when it comes to the 
take. You know what I mean? It's it's easier to break off if you don't have some kind of give in your in your uh, floral or or your uh, yeah floral can be bad for that, but you know what I mean? Like you get that hit and sometimes it's just gone. Yeah, it's that shock, the shock, the initial shock. Yeah, especially if you're having to fish small and fine tippets. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, I think we got a pretty good idea of the types of fishing you're doing, lock style, wild browns. Now, I'm really curious, Robbie, are any of these browns sea run? So, you know, is there any kind of uh, way they can get to the ocean? Or are these strictly landlocked? Um, it does depend where you fish. So, yeah, some of them will be sea run in some works, especially if you go to the islands, if we visit the, the outer Hebrides, to be quite a few of the waters there will have sea run fish. Um, but I've also tried fishing and fishing in the, the estuaries for sea run browns almost in the salt water, which is great fun. Are you your experience fishing for big browns? And they definitely are more meat eaters. They they can be. Um, are you fishing a lot of streamer patterns, or what types of patterns are you throwing quite often for these guys? Well. For um, streamer patterns in the estuaries, yes, and I suppose in the rivers. I don't do a lot of streamer fishing in the rivers. It's something I'm intending to do some more of. But um, in some of the walks with the big trout, it's, it can be quite unusual patterns. Um, so I've got a, a, a good friend put me on to a pattern he called the Sedgezilla. It's a basically a sedgehog pattern, which is a dubbed seals for body, but with multiple wing deer hair wings all along the body and big rubber legs at Ooh, the front. That sounds um, buggy. But tied on a size two hook. It looks enough like nothing you'll ever see in the water. There's no insect that exists that looks anything like this. But on its day, the fish just can't resist it. We're chatting today with Robert McDonald Lewis, a.k.a. Robbie, out of Aberdeen, Scotland, just outside. He's got a farm there where you raise Shetland ponies. He's also a structural structural engineer in, in the world of offshore oil and gas. Um, let's talk about your day job a little bit. How long have you been doing that? Uh, so since 2003. Um, and you say you're doing some consulting work, or are you working for a larger firm? Yeah, so I contract us uh, engineering consultancy just now. So, how has uh, w- during these COVID couple of years, are you able to work from home, or is that something you got to be on site for? No, it's we, we were very lucky. The company had all the IT set up that we could work from home, and it worked really well. Um, actually, we went into lockdown the day. The day after the company had the, a test day for everyone working from home so we had the test day and we just didn't go back into the office we're now going back in as we're needed sort of i think it's about one day a week i've been going into the office but uh i say my, i like my commute now yeah no kidding and uh the fly tying bench is never far away i love the fact that you do some tying on your lunch hour i think that's pretty cool um, let's talk about your farm. So um, does the farm have a name and what's it like raising Shetland ponies? Just, uh, they're so cool looking. Uh, what have you learned? What's that experience taught you? Um, quite a lot. It's, it's, or I suppose it's a small farm. It's Hillhead Croft is the name of the property. And, um, it's from the gear Shetland pony stud. 
I say we, we run, it's my wife manages it. I'm just here for the, the heavy lifting and the grunt work. It's, uh, <laughs> Fair enough. But she does very well. Um, so she's, we've, exported, we've actually exported ponies to New York State and California, wow. Ireland. But now uh, this is a, I know nothing about Shetland ponies. So are we talking, are they a certain color for the most part? Are they, is there certain different breeds of Shetland ponies? Are they all, is, is a, a pony, a pony, a pony? Well, no, we breed sort of standard blacks. So they're up to 42 inches. So we try and breed the ponies to be as close to, they call it up to height. So you're looking 40 to 42 inches. But um, oh, there's colours and you get a whole range of different colours and uh, they also have miniature ponies. Do, do uh, they live as long as a horse would or is it different? Yeah, no, they do. Um, we've got ponies that have been up to 18 or into their 20s. How, how, many, so they, how, how many got on the farm today as we speak? Uh, oh, now you're asking. I think it's seven or eight, but we just brought a new one in yesterday. So as you raise these ponies, do you do you sell mostly all of them, or, or do you try to hang on to a few? Um, we're keeping a few. Actually, my wife's been cutting down over the last few years and focusing the breeding onto certain lines. So I think at the most we had a few years ago was about 20-odd ponies. So we've, we've brought the, the numbers have been brought down and more focused just now. What's a Shetland pony worth? If uh, if I'm listening to this, going, I really need a Shetland pony, and 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 I live in New York. <laughs> what, <laughs> what are we talking here? Well, I suppose if you're living in New York, it's going to cost you a lot more to ship it than it will to buy the pony. But yeah, um, it it does depend very much. So um, it's always that conundrum. It's with the I suppose breeding of any animals, the top notch ponies go for a lot of money. So you're looking at. Depends on whether it's a stallion or a mare, but you could be tens of thousands for the the cream of the crop. Wow! Ponies, not that we've managed to sell any for that much. You are for good ponies. You're looking at one to two thousand, maybe two to three thousand. Well, you get one of those uh, stallions or a, a nice mare. That's a lot of peacock hurl. Yes. <laughs> That's the. the I think that's probably why I've managed to accrue so much fly tying stuff. I've always getting brownie points. Oh man, good stuff. Um, so let's get back to the water a little bit. I want you to throw your artist hat on for me and paint us a picture of your dream day. I assume it's on a lock, um, probably Jason Wild Browns, but uh, paint us a picture. What does it look like? Who are you fishing with? What are you throwing? What are you eating at the end of the day? Just walk us through your perfect day. I guess that depends. I suppose to ensure the perfect day, I would be on my own, I think, um, just to give you full control over what happens and where you go and what you do. Um, but that would be a good long hike into the hills. Um, I guess the actual enjoyment and anticipation starts at the planning stage, though, planning where you're going, selecting the lock, planning the route, tying the flies, getting sure you've got all your kit together, checking it. Um, but yeah, a good strenuous walk into the hills somewhere in the, in amongst the hills, probably a beautiful, a nice corrie walking. So we, it's with a nice 
intimate water surrounded in an amphitheatre of hills around it with enough clarity in the water so you can see the nice drop off. Um, I'm not too fussed about the weather conditions as long as it's not too brutal. There's uh, never a bad day's fishing. Yeah, no kidding. So are these fish that you're chasing, like, do they winter okay? I mean, what's a winter like near Aberdeen? Like, are we talking, like, is there a lot of kill? um, Or is that just not something you really worry about? Our winters usually aren't that harsh. Um, We may complain about them and moan, but it's nothing compared to what you get over there. Yeah, fair. And honestly, if we didn't have aerators on a lot of our still waters, they would. Some of these lakes wouldn't winter, especially the shallower ones. But um, I, I would. How big do these browns get? Just out of curiosity, because if if they're overwintering, I would imagine you're getting some pretty big ones. Well, it depends. A lot of our waters are actually quite poor nutritionally, so a lot of the time, the vast majority of waters, you're not getting big fish. Maybe half to a pound maybe being a big fish in a lot of them but there are some waters in some areas so if you look at the McCare lochs on south east and the outer hebrides some of the fish in there can get big three four five six seven pounds on the McCare lochs are almost like a they're on sand base so they're almost like limestone lochs and there are lochs that you can be looking at wild brown trout in the teens of pounds. When you're fishing for these guys, let's say you're on a you're let's say you're in your belly boat and you're anchored or you're holding your spot with your fins and you're casting towards the shore. Are you fishing a lot of dry lines? Are you fishing a lot of HD lines? Um, are you fishing float, uh, floating lines? It's primarily floating lines that I use. Um, I do have an intermediate line. Um, I'm considering looking into getting a sink tip line this year, but it's, my go-to would be a floating line. Um, or brown trout, especially when you're fishing in towards the shallows, they tend to be looking up and quite willing to move in the water column. Are you fishing indicators or are you fishing like naked? And when I say naked, I mean, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Uh, yeah, it's uh, no, no indicators. Usually we're fishing quite high in the water. So yeah. I'll often start my day with a, a sedge hog or a muddler on the, on the bob top dropper. So to create a disturbance and catch the fish's attention and maybe another staple would be a Cape McLaren on the point. Uh-huh. Okay, you're giving away all the secrets now. What's a, <laughs> what's a Kate McLaren? Is that what you said, Kate? Yeah, Kate McLaren is probably one of my favourite wet flies. So it's a, a golden pheasant crest tail black seals for body, black palmered hackle, and a brown hen head hackle. And hmm. I just find it's a hugely versatile fly. It can, you can almost fish it dry, fish it wet, pull it, strip it, do almost anything with it, and it'll catch fish. I can't imagine there's too many waters it wouldn't take a fish. I'll tell you what. When we get off this call, I'm going to tie one up. I'm going to look on your site. So we're chatting with Robbie McDonald Lewis out of Northeast Scotland, RML underscore fly tying. Check out some of his patterns. Is there anything about the state of fly fishing or fly tying that you look at that go, we could be doing something better? Uh, like, is there anything that irks you then that's going on in the fly fishing space? 
I suppose it's the the damage would, that's been done to the environment with and very little being done about it. It's been picking up more recently. I've seen a lot more discussions on the pollution, especially down south in England. We've heard more about it, but there doesn't seem to be as much up here in Scotland in the press or publicised about it. Um, but I think in some way it's almost um, linked to the sort of people sometimes only value something based on what they pay for it. So the fact that a lot of our hillock trout fishing is effectively free, people don't put a value on it as a resource. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, I, I get, I get what you're saying there. Is there a lot of conservation funds uh, in your neck of the woods that kind of looks after these waters, or is, are they just kind of left to their own devices? I guess it's. I think that's mainly they're kind of left to their own devices, but a lot of them are. It's the way, the way the fisheries are owned and managed. So it's by fishery, but for the rivers, it's by fisheries boards, and for the locks, it'll be by the ground or the estate or the landowner, landowners that surround them. So there's not a. I suppose it's quite difficult to get a concerted effort around a wide area. How far do you have to walk to get into some of these lakes, or, or do you have to drive somewhere first normally and walk, or are you just leaving the farm and with your fly rod in hand? Well, I, I unfortunately I've got a, there's a local river, the Ethan, is just at the bottom of the hill, so I can jump in the car and be there in five ten minutes. But for locks, for the hill locks I like, I'm usually having to drive four or five hours, which probably isn't that long by your standard, but it's a fair distance over here. Yeah. Do you, any thoughts to uh, digging a pond on the property? I mean, 17 acres, you could be doing some fly fishing in your backyard. Yeah, I think my wife might kill me if I did that much damage to the grazing. There you go. Yeah, that's, yeah, I feel that. Good stuff. Well, hey, Robbie, I really appreciate you taking the time with us today, and uh, I love what you're doing. I love the fact that uh, we've been talking a little whiskey, a little ponies, uh, a lot of fly fishing, a lot of fly time. Keep up the great work at the Vice, my friend, and uh, hopefully if you're ever out this neck of the woods or if I'm out your way, we can uh, chase some wild browns. Oh, absolutely. That would be great. Thanks for doing this. Uh, thanks for having me. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by theflycrate.com. Thank you for listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Your feedback matters. Let us know if there's a person or topic you'd like discussed. Email us at mark at flyfishing97.com. Until next time, tight lines and we'll see you on the water. Mm-hmm.